0: Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes to soothing decibels. I'm your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 56. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like, is the Skulls a movie worth talking about for more than five minutes? Why Legion is the best superhero TV show of all time, and how Deep Blue Sea 3 is a surprise gift that humanity needs right now. No quote too minor, no side plot too small, This is a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks. So welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. So before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observations. So I did a podcast yesterday on The West Wing, and my guest, my buddy Steve Kramer, shout out Steve if you're listening, and we just started gushing about Mary Louise Parker's portrayal of women's rights political operative Amy Gardner. She also is the main character in, in Weeds, She's uh, Bruce Willis' girlfriend in red. I mean, she's in a bunch of stuff. You you definitely know her if you saw her. Just short, brunette, like fiery. I think she's Texan. She's Tex. Is it Texan or Texonian? She's a Texan. Yeah. So she got that kind of like Southern spark to her. And while we're talking about her, I wanted to understand why we're so smitten with her performance. Outside of the standard talent and looks answer, you know what I mean? I wanted to get a little bit more in depth. And I think I have it nailed down to why she's so uniquely watchable, there's this one specific trait. Now stay with me here, it's her smile. Now she has this way of grinning that is equal parts kind of seductive and dangerous, and I watch scenes over and over and over and over with her in it, and I think I got the specifics of her grin down. I know it's weird to think about, but you know, whatever, I got free time, it's pandemic. I'm gonna look at Mary Lou Parker's you know, smile for 30, 40 minutes. <laughs> So she seems to hold the tip of her tongue to the roof of her mouth behind her teeth when she smirks, and it allows for her bottom lip to tighten. And there's this minor gap between her front teeth and her bottom teeth that kind of allows for this hyena-joker hybrid smile that makes her vibrate kind of on a different wavelength. There's just something, I don't know, there's something different about it. It's just weird. It's just intoxicating to witness, especially if you know what you're looking for. You know, it's like when you're watching The Sixth Sense, the sixth time over, and you're like picking up the little things. I know it sounds insane, but do me a favor, all right? Everybody who's listening, go to the room in your house with the best lighting and a mirror available. I'll wait, you know what I mean? You're probably wearing this on Bluetooth headphones or on an iPod or iPad. I don't think anyone has an iPod anymore. So, I mean, on your iPhone. And so go to the mirror and stick the, t- the tip of your tongue on the left side of the roof of your mouth, just next to your back left molars, okay? And then attempt your best thousand watt red carpet movie star smile. So something about your awareness of your tongue pressing on, your, uh, like on the top of your roof of your mouth makes you feel dominant. It's like you're in control of your facial expressions at a level you never felt before. It's like an on off switch, it's weird. And that smile re- that, re- the re- that, that smile that you create just kind of pops clean and it's just i mean it's just a great reflection and am i taking this way too seriously i mean of course i am because this is a show that goes the extra step for your entertainment i enjoy breaking down who has the best emotional conveyance via their eyebrows film and television are full tilt dives into the internal and external emotions of human beings so why not you know a smile so i want to break down each and every detail and comprehend why some actors make a swoon and others don't have the right stuff i mean what if Philip Seymour Hoffman's dimples have like a big part of why he's so, you know, appealing to us. We don't know. So I don't care if I'm ranting for five minutes about Rosario Dawson's footwear in uh death proof. Uh, all the pieces matter for these actors and actresses. They're being put on stage, you know, and we're seeing every part of them. And I want to find out what, what makes them tick and what makes us you know want to see them over and over again. And it's fun looking at, uh, looking at these things and kind of an- analyzing them for no reason at all which separates us from the animals you know what i mean because i mean i want to know which pieces of a thousand piece puzzle of the wise someone's an a-lister i think we just we generally gloss over like we look at george clooney and we're like it's an 83 percent we're like he's a good actor he's confident he's well spoken he's in good roles you know that's 83 percent of a thousand piece puzzle so there's still you know 170. Is that right? 170 pieces, and I wanna I wanna investigate that. I wanna go into the backlighting that the director chose for Clooney, or the musical interludes that are you know put in when he's on screen, or the frame speed when he's uh doing something when he's jumping over a car. So whatever a director or actor thought was an important part of their film to express, by osmosis, that's important to me, and I love being able to convey that nitty gritty kind of. Uh, details to you out there so because i mean we can all quote old school or all over brad pitt's abs i want this to be a podcast about passionate detail-oriented curation of the small things that make great programming so mary louise parker thank you for your sultry smile techniques i appreciate it you know what i mean you should ch- you teach classes you should have a youtube channel i think you get a hundred thousand hits and you're just greatly acknowledged for being a gem just thank you. So. Today's topic, not about smiles. Although maybe I'll do, I I would love to do a celebrity smile one. First one's off the bat come, I love Denzel's smile, Matt Damon's smile, Cameron Diaz. Who else has got a good smirk? Bradley Whitford actually has that nice, like, boyish smirk. We talked about that yesterday. I think I'm just a West Wing kid. But, you know, back to the topic. So, like I just said, I love comparisons, love rankings, what ifs, and basically anything where you can take two similar fields and kind of find a bond between them. I think I did a pod a couple of weeks ago, comparing A-list actors to food types. And that was really fun. I had a good time with that. So I was racking my brain on the subject uh, of, you know, what to compare to what in the shower, you know, I'll spend these 20, 30 minute showers, probably why my water bill is so high. And I came up with why film directors and professional level coaches, you know, in the athletics share a startling number of similarities. Because if you think about it, they are both leaders in their given profession. Neither one is on the field nor on screen, and the glory tends to shine brighter on the actor or the star athlete than the actual coach. You know, they're behind the scenes a little bit. But their guidance, their sage advice, and inspiration are monumental in determining whether their team or their movie is successful. And there are a variety of schools of thought as to which method of leading works best. You know, you have your... Army general, General Patton types who preach discipline and won't accept any bad talk. You got your Bobby Knights, you know, throwing chairs and whatnot and yelling at kids. You got David Fincher with 100 takes. I heard he, I mean, on the movie Zodiac, he like basically broke Jake Gyllenhaal. He made him do 100 takes and he like lost his mind. Bill Parcells, you know, doesn't seem like he takes any guff from anybody. And Francis Ford Coppola, you know, losing his mind on Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Oh, man, that was was a good, uh, if you want to watch a good documentary, Heart of Darkness, that is fucking... Oh man, I said the F word. I'm sorry. That is effing. Sorry, mom. <laughs> but I do put explicit on all these just in case I have a slip. Cause I do say ass once in a while. Well, now I said another sword. God darn it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's okay. You know, this is a non edited uh, podcast. So you're going to get a little bit of off script stuff and you know, I'm not on the Disney channel or anything. So it's okay. And so, okay. So you got your disciplined general types, man. I guess because of the whole General Patton alpha type, I just went for the swear word and now I can't let it go. So moving on. So you have your more laid back player coach types who work in cohesion with their team and accept kind of ideas and improvisation. You got Judd Apatow, you know, lets his actors improv for hours on screen and, you know, shows the movies end up in two and a half hours for comedies. Sean McVeigh, who's the same age and seems like he's buddies with all the uh, Rams players and lets them contribute like that. He basically asked them, what are you good at? Oh, we'll figure something out for you. And then there's those who want to be anarchists and rebel against what has been historically successful to create a new way of succeeding in the field. You know, you got your Chip Kelly's with your special shakes and sleep cycles and, you know, fun gun and uh, weird signs for showing the plays. You got Oliver Stone, who, you know, has these quick cuts and wants to show football any given Sunday as like a war movie. He's like, football's a war. I'm gonna show you how. Steven Soderbergh directs movies on his iPhone so that they're and also sometimes tries to release movies without uh, uh a film house. And you got Mike Leach, you know, who's just a crazy coach who just, you know, wants to throw the ball nine hundred times a game. Anyway you slice it, these are uniquely talented control freaks who create off screen and who create like they create the film on screen by being kind of controlling of the off screen stuff. So let's get into the major players first. So always more fun to discuss greatness. I don't know. I just, I don't like picking at the weird outer, outer stuff first before you go through the main, you know, all-star hall of fame ones. That's just more fun to me. It's just more universal. You get more conversations going. Everyone can relate. Cause I mean, that's the worst. When someone asks like, have you seen that movie? And you're like, no, I haven't stupid it's like we the conversation just ends it's like improv they tell you to always say yes to someone because it continues the story you say no it's over so i'm, I'm making sure that everyone can say yes like oh yeah i know that so easy first pairing i went steven spielberg and bill belichick i mean both are undisputably the best at their craft they can create winners in any style or form of their medium steven can do dinosaur action adventures with jurassic park he does a Holocaust black and white true story with Schindler's List. He did fa- feel good, uh, family friendly kid meets cute alien sci-fi with E.T. 1960s bright and airy con man movies with catch me if you can and oceanic shark blockbusters with Jaws. So and he goes on and on and on and on and on with Spielberg. I mean, just hit after hit after hit for like 23, 24 years crazy. And he really uses the same actors I mean, he, he doesn't have like a lot of directors have their, you know, guys like there's the Wes Anderson crew. There's the uh, David Fincher, David Fincher actor, stuff like that. Spielberg doesn't have special guys. He can work with anybody. He's worked with Tom Cruise, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Daniel Day-Lewis, Dustin Hoffman, Sam Neill, Harrison Ford, uh, Anthony Hopkins, just endless numbers of A-listers. And he really kind of goes back to him. I think it was kind of a big deal when him and Tom Cruise did a couple of movies together. So now let's look at Bill Belichick, whose 20-year run of dominance dominance took hundreds of forms. I mean, he was just, he was an amoeba, you know what I mean? And also I'm a Patriots fan, so this is just fun to talk about because he's awesome. So you look at the 2001 Super Bowl team. They were just a mean defense with great defensive backs that attacked the Rams in the Super Bowl. And they had a game manager offense. You know, Tom Brady was 150, 200 yards, couple touchdowns, no interceptions. You know, he wasn't running, gunning. He was just a rookie who had good poise under pressure. And then to that look at 2007, that's six years later. That's not that far. And they were the most prolific offense in the history of the league. And they went 18 and one stupid David Tyree. Don't want to talk about it. And they were throwing the ball in an outrageous clip. They had, you know, Randy Moss at his best. They had Wes Welker. They had, was Gronk? No, Gronk wasn't there yet. And uh, I mean, they were just, uh, they were just destroying teams. And it was an all offense-based team. 2010 he went heavy double tight end formations with Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez before anyone else in the league thought uh, of using this because he had these two monsters. And he's I mean, he just flexes. He's like, what's my talent? What do I have? What do I have to work with? All right, let's, be, let's do what you're good at. That's great. He'd have a guy like Thomas Gray, who was a running back, and he ran for 200 yards in a regular season game with four touchdowns, which is crazy. And he'd be on the cover of Sports Illustrated the next week, And then he'd cut him two weeks later for just being insubordinate or just he didn't need him anymore. So, I mean, he was just endlessly flexible and both dominated in all categories of winning for 20-plus years, like I said. For Steven, it was unheard of, consistent box office successes. I mean, the amount of movies he made was over 100 million. I don't think anyone's even close. It's crazy. And pop culture references, you know, we all know the E.T., phone, home, or the Jurassic Park, water, drip. Or I mean, the Minority Report when he's listening to classical music and hand waving with the screen. I mean, there's just so many iconic parts of uh, of Steven Spielberg movies that you go on and on about. And for Belichick, it was 20 seasons of 10 plus regular season wins, 19 division championships, and even the year they didn't win, they went 11 and five. I think someone just went 12 and four that, and that was the year Brady hurt himself. So, and then we got Matt Castles to win 11 games, crazy. And I say we like I was on the team, but. uh nine super bowl trips two six super bowl wins and the best winning percentage in the history of the nfl so that's a mic drop right there so this this comparison just really makes me really happy it's just film and sports are dominated by two of my favorite innovators so shout out bill shout out steven so moving on uh while we're still on the topic of big wigs let's turn to christopher nolan and phil jackson all right follow me here i always say follow me it's like do you, are you not following me? Do I feel self-conscious that you're not following me? So I'm like, give me your hand. Come on, I'm going to walk you like a little toddler. I'm going to lead the way. But is that a good thing? Let me know. Do, I, do you like when I say follow me here? Or am I being kind of uh, demanding of you? So I don't know. Well, I'll think about it. I mean, I don't know because I'm just talking to myself. I'm literally just staring at a wall talking at myself. It's a little, a little weird. It's like you have a split personality you're talking to. But anyways, Christopher Nolan, Phil Jackson. So they're both kind of mysterious, zen-like, behind-the-scenes men of the highest of high professional achievement. So first, easiest comparison is if they're at their absolute best at when they take high-end talent and resources and get the very best out of them. They aren't moneyball efficiency experts in the Billy Bean sense where, you know, you have a low payroll and you got to script and scrub and, you know, do with 3 million, what other people are doing with 40 million. No, no, no. They're getting the big budgets. Or, I mean, in movies, he's not, Nolan's not a Richard Linklitter, you know, who spends $5 million on a cute, romantic, uh, foreign film, you know, about two people falling in love in Vienna or, you know, something like that. He wants, Nolan has the big $150, 250000000 million budgets. It's high concept, psychologically dense scripts that took years to perfect. I think you had the script for Inception in his pocket for like six or seven years and Interstellar was four or five years. Crazy. And he's got top-notch acting talent that never comes cheap. You know, he's not skimping on that talent. So he's not seeking the next big thing. It's not like you look at one of his movies like, oh, this is before someone became up and coming. No, he makes sure... He's like, LeBron doesn't want to deal with rookies. He's like, give me train pros. Give me, you know, in the prime, like 26 to 28-year-old prime Kyrie, prime Anthony Davis, that kind of vibe. So he goes for the Rolls Royce of talent. He's got DiCaprio, McConaughey, Tom Hardy, Pacino, Heath Ledger, Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, Robin Williams, goes on and on and on. And his movies have this kind of sense of arrogance and intelligence and coldness. It kind of stems from his general outlook on the world. I mean, if you... Seen inception it's weird the way leo dresses and his hairstyle and also the way he acts is very like christopher nolan i've heard that inception actually the the whole heist team is basically like the crew of a movie like leo was the director uh arthur was the director of photography tom hardy was the writer i mean there's this whole i'm not sure if that's actually true but i mean seems right and also i mean I've heard that Christopher Nolan is colorblind too. So he only kind of sees some grays and it just makes sense. His movies aren't very vibrant color wise. So his, like I said, his movies feel like him and Phil has these very similar traits. He's always the highest paid coach, which is definitely so. And he manages the most expensive rosters with uh, the league's prime talent. He's got, you know, from Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman to Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Paul Gasol. He's, a Hall of Fame whisperer. You know what I mean? His best skill is managing high-end talent and getting the best out of them. Like, he'll give books to them and just be like, I think this applies to you. You know what I mean? He treats them – he he's underst- he understands they're rock stars, but to him, they're just a buddy of his. And I think there's something about that, that he just knows how to connect to them. And like Nolan, he runs his teams in a particular system that he's mastered, the triangle offense for uh, Phil Jackson, not for – Christopher Nolan. not running the triangle offense on his movies. It would be very strange. And they generally, his teams played the same style. And also both of them, both uh, Phil and Christopher, uh, kind of have this aloof coolness to them that makes them mysterious. I mean, Phil has the Montana farmland and that Zen Buddhist kind of vibes. And, you know, he's a hippie who drives a motorcycle. And Christopher Nolan kind of has these rare interviews and he has this British stiff upper lip. He doesn't really say much and yeah so i think that one works pretty well so now we're on to my favorite comparison for my for a ton of reasons so i got jimmy harbaugh and quentin tarantino so this one took a bit of heavy contemplation but when it hit it was like thomas edison light bulb it was who's the dude that discovered gravity uh man this is gonna bother me i'm gonna sound stupid uh, uh, he, Isaac Newton. There we go. You know, when the apple fell on his head, it's like, oh, Eureka! Of course, you know, apple gravity. And I was like, Quentin Tarantino, Harbaugh, perfect. So both are kind of these manically intense, loud, obsessive people who adore their craft more than any human being on the planet. I mean, you can tell if Harbaugh could play football again, uh, he would sign his soul over. You know, what I mean, to play in the NFL again. And Tarantino is a you know a, a video store clerk that just watched movies over and over again and just picked the best pieces. And you know, it's just Passionate about the field, so when they're both interviewed, they can't help but leak un- uncontrollably about their upcoming prog- projects or talk about the past history of their field. Like I said, Quentin could talk about movies all day. Harbaugh could talk about football until he's blue in the face. Doesn't care. And they both love resurrecting careers or pro or football programs. So Tarantino made John Travolta relevant again in Pulp Fiction. Shout out Vincent Vega, Pam Greer and Jackie Brown. David Carradine and Daryl Hannah in The Kill Bills. I wonder why Daryl Hannah needed her career resurrected. She was so great. And, I mean, I remember... What's the wonder she's a mermaid and Tom Hanks? It's like, Splash. Yeah, she's just great. She does, she looks the same, too. It's crazy. So, I'm just happy she's back. But I, I didn't know why she left. I'll say she was great in Wall Street. Love her in Wall Street. And Harpa, Harbaugh Harpa, Harba took over and revamped pathetic San Diego State. He took impossibly... Uh, high educational standards, Stanford, and made them a bowl team and, you know, like a top five program. And then he took the lowly 49ers to the Super Bowl in just two years. And finally, he made Michigan football go blue. I am a Wolverine. Uh, Household name again and recruiting hotbed yet again. So similarities don't stop there. They both love their field so much that they can't help but put themselves on screen or on the field. Harbaugh was a pro quarterback. You know, he was on the Colts. Pretty good. And he never says no to kind of a shirtless catch session session with his uh, players, or he likes acting out his drills for the team. You know, I mean, he basically, he, he feels like he's a player coach still. You know I mean? He just wants to be out there just doing stuff and throwing balls. And Tarantino has had 38 acting credits from Reservoir Dogs to Grindhouse to From Dust Till Dawn to Pulp Fiction. And both have some skills when the lights are on them. You know, I mean, Harbaugh led some decent Colts team with uh, Marshall Falk and Tarantino and Pulp Fiction is pretty good. You know, I mean, not, I mean, he's not like a level actor, but Dusk Till Dawn too. He's pretty, he's like a good character actor, a good side, side piece. And both are belovedly beloved culturally, but are often kind of panned by critics or award boards. There's no Oscars for Quentin. There's no rings for Harbaugh. And lastly, uh, like I said, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people think they deserve, you know, a ring or, I mean, Harbaugh deserves a ring and Tarantino deserves a directing Oscar at some point. There's some zealots out there. Zealots. Zealots. Yeah. And finally I got uh, a more fun one. That's a little more unique. I got Mike D'Antonio and Edgar Wright. So both are before their times kind of revolutionaries who forcibly pushed the medium forward. D'Antonio had his seven seconds or less offense at Phoenix. And how fun was that? That was Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, uh, Quentin Richardson, uh, Boris Diaw and, hold on, Sean Marion. And, I mean, they were just pushing the ball, scoring 110, 120 points. I mean, there was nothing like it. And, like, that's what the league is now. And his obsession with three-pointers, now with the Rockets, you know, it's just offensive genius that everyone else kind of figured out, oh, three points is more than two. And if you have a – you can shoot at, like, a 35 to 40% clip, it doesn't matter, you know, that's a less – high-percentage shot than a two-point shot. Just if you make more of them, you know, that you're going to have more points overall. It's just a basic math program. It's kind of crazy. And Edgar Wright has these manic, fast-paced, slapstick comedy action combos, like Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, and my favorite, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. And he just... I mean, I love Edgar Wright so much. Scott Pilgrim's my top four movies ever. And they were years ahead of kind of their... Of their fields, Edgar Wright had this snarky, self-aware superhero kind of vibe uh, that Deadpool and Iron Man took from, and it's clearly, it's clearly a cue from you know uh, Edgar Wright's movies like Hot Fudge, Hot Fudge, hmm, Hungry, uh, Hot Fuzz, uh, kind of ripping on Die Hard, and but at the same time still having awesome action, or Scott Pilgrim being this you know fourth wall breaking, cartoonish but still badass you know Kill Bill level action movie. So they both have rabid fans, but they're rarely critically acknowledged as being top tier in their field, and they're kind of seen as one trick ponies. You know what I mean? There's not much. I mean, that's how reviewers kind of see them. They have this one skill that they do better than the rest of their peers, and then they kind of get waved off. But they're great. Oh, shout out to Baby Driver too. That's a great movie. And both produce wins and hits at kind of a breakneck speed using their special brand of magic. So there you have it. There's our first edition of coaches as directors. I hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed making it and i got a lot more down the pipe but i didn't want to overload it i don't want to have you know an hour and a half of this and you'd be like "Oh, i'm sick of this you know what i mean i want to keep keep it you know i can have a three-parter on this one i can do part two i'll talk about andy reed and scorsese part three i'll go fincher and nick saban coach k soderberg we can go on and on and on because i mean there there are weird similarities to all these people you know these obsessive great people so till next time later